Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. An alarming rise in case numbers of the sexually transmitted infection syphilis is prompting health officials across the globe to issue new screening and treatment guidelines. The increase for Native Americans is especially troubling and health officials say rising infections among newborn infants requires urgent action. At the same time, the drugs to treat the infections are in short supply. We'll find out what's behind the increase and what health officials say is needed, all right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The wheels of the legal system continue to grind in a lawsuit filed earlier this year by the state of Alaska, challenging whether the federal government can designate new parcels of land as Indian country. Last week, the Alaska Attorney General asked the U.S. District Court of Alaska for a summary judgment in its lawsuit against the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Clinkett and Haida, the regional tribal government for Southeast Alaska. In January, the Assistant Secretary of the Interior, Brian Newland, granted Clinkett and Haida's request to take a small parcel of land in downtown Juneau into trust. Alaska Attorney General Treg Taylor says Newland didn't have the authority to do that because the 1971 Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act doesn't allow new trust land to be created in Alaska. And although the piece of land in question is tiny, less than 800 square feet, the state says if it remains in trust, it creates the equivalent of a reservation, which the Claims Act sought to prevent, a huge issue in a state with more than 200 tribes. Two other tribes, Nanilchik and Fort Yukon, have land into trust requests pending, as well as Clinkett and Haida. The state's request for a summary judgment is a pretrial motion in which the judge can decide some issues and set others aside for later. For now, both parties are submitting written arguments to the court. A spokesperson for the Department of Law says there may be oral arguments at some point. Clinkett and Haida says putting land into trust gives it economic benefits and access to federal and tribal programs. Earlier this month, the School for Advanced Research was awarded two grants from the Institute of Museums and Library Services for initiatives by SAR's Indian Arts Research Center. SAR received a grant of almost $50,000 for the IARC's project to improve the stewardship of its collection of over 12,000 items of Indigenous Southwest art and history. SAR also received an IMLS National Leadership Grant for museums of approximately $175,000 for the IARC's creation of the Indigenous Collections Care Guide. The guide will provide museums with a framework to recenter collection stewardship practices around the needs and knowledge of Indigenous community members. At the conclusion of the project, 175 tribal community representatives and museum professionals will have had a voice in the development of the guide, which will be made freely available for tribal community representatives and museums of all sizes. The Bishop Paiute Tribe, which is located at the foot of the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains in Bishop, California, and is the fifth largest tribe in California, is celebrating a newly installed 49 KWDC system as part of the tribe's overall sustainable energy plan, which seeks to improve energy efficiency for reservation residents through the addition of renewable energy resources. The project was installed in part with funding from the California Solar and Multifamily Affordable Housing Program at Coyote Mountain Apartments, an affordable housing and sober living facility. A ribbon-cutting ceremony was held on August 9th. The project is the first SOMA program incentivized installation to be completed within a tribal reservation in the state. The over $180,000 system is projected to save the 24 households almost $500,000 on their energy bills over the lifetime of the system. 
California Public Utilities Commission Commissioner John Reynolds shared his enthusiasm about the completed project. He said, quote, I congratulate the Bishop Paiute Tribe and GRID for completing the first tribal solar project under the SOMA program. This is exactly the kind of community-based and community-led solar project we need more of. And as the Public Utilities Commission considers ways to improve the SOMA program in the future, I hope we hear from tribes and organizations like the ones here today about what we can do to make sure solar reaches everyone, end quote. The solar project is a partnership between the Bishop Paiute Tribe Community Development Department and Great Alternatives Inland Empire Office. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty, it begins with us. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Syphilis infection rates for Native Americans is causing alarm among health officials. The most recent report for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows Native Americans and Alaska Natives outpace every other group when it comes to the percentage increase of the disease over a five-year period. Most troubling is a dramatic increase in infections among Native newborns, especially in places like Alaska and South Dakota. Syphilis carries serious potential health consequences, including brain damage and even death. However, health officials say it's relatively easy to treat. Sometimes a single dose of antibiotics cures the infection, but it also goes undetected and stigma prevents some people from getting tested. Health officials are issuing a series of new guidelines to try and head off what they're calling an epidemic. We'll learn about the guidelines today and what's driving the recent surge in syphilis and other sexually transmitted diseases. Join this discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. Our number again, 1-800-996-2848. Get your calls in early. We'll get you on the line. We have our guest today on the show first in Phoenix, Arizona, is Dr. Loretta Christensen. She is Chief Medical Officer for the Indian Health Service, and she is Navajo. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Christensen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here to um, uh, provide some good information for all our listeners. And I'm looking forward to more of this information, Dr. Christensen. Thank you. Joining us from Northern Illinois is Jessica Leston. She is the director for the National Center for Clinical Support and Preventative Health Services. She is Simshian. Hi, Jessica. Great to have you on the show. Hi. Thanks so much for talking about this important subject. Absolutely. 
And in Rapid City, South Dakota, we have Dr. Megan O'Connell. She is the Chief Public Health Officer for the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board, and she is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Dr. O'Connell, you've been here before. Welcome back to NAC. Thank you for having me again and talking about this important topic. Well, let's go ahead and get this conversation started. Dr. Christensen, I'd like to begin with you and this alarming new report from the CDC. What's in the data specific to Native Americans that has health professionals most concerned? Yeah, the the information is actually stunning. If you look at the increase in primary and secondary syphilis, it's it's over 320% greater within the last five-year period. And if you look at the congenital syphilis, it's over 732% higher. So this isn't, you know, just a small bump. This is a significant public health issue that needs to be addressed very, very aggressively. Um, We are all obviously very concerned um, how to get this under control, how to get the treatment out there, and how to bring these numbers back down for the health of our, our population. Now, I understand there are increasing syphilis rates across the board, all groups of people, but Native Americans and Alaska Natives getting hit especially hard. What do you think is driving these numbers, Dr. Christensen? Well, there's a lot of factors that are driving the numbers. Um, you know, just to, just to back up like one step, during COVID, we know that substance abuse disorders skyrocketed. We unfortunately had a very big increase in overdose deaths. And what we're finding is a great deal of our cases of syphilis are due to substance abuse, which then leads to unprotected sex, uh, which then leads to a contact with multiple partners, and it, it just keeps spreading. And a lot of people aren't getting tested, and they don't even perhaps know they're ill. So we saw this huge increase, and we just know that our, the substance use disorders have a big impact on the way that this is spread throughout our population. So it just really went up extremely high fairly quickly. Um, And we have been working very hard, all of us across all of our regions, to try to get a a hold of this, get it under control, and get the right advice and treatment out to the field. And Dr. Christensen, are you seeing a, a difference between infections for men or women, or is it about equal? Well, it's ended up being near equal in many of our regions. It used to be um, somewhat male-dominated. Now we're seeing a lot more female cases. And, you know, depending on the region, it just is very profound. There is just so many cases. Um, And then you look at the resources we have to address what's going on, and a lot of it has to do with capacity. How many cases in your area is quite important, but also how many can you get to? What staff do we have to go investigate um, partners or contacts of the people that are positive for syphilis. And there's some rate-limiting issues there that we are um, definitely challenged with that we're working very hard to overcome. And these figures that the CDC is reporting on, are those coming from the Indian Health Service or other types of clinics? Where are they getting the data? Well, that's a great question. And I think that we'll find during our conversation today, we all struggle with I call it the terrible triangle, just for lack of a better word, in that we have tribal data, we have federal IHS data, and then we have state data. And they all need to be reported and coordinated. But there's some things that hold us up, such as the way we identify ourselves as an American Indian Alaska Native. It's not always asked, so it may not be recorded, so we may not be getting that data. 
Um, some of our population does not seek treatment at a tribal, urban, or federal site. So that may be they went to a private sector place, and then that gets reported to the state, but that wouldn't get reported to the tribal or the federal. So we need a very important coordination of our data so we can really see our true numbers and know what we're dealing with. So that is something that we struggle with during the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's still something we're struggling with now. So the, the, a lot of the time the state will have the most accurate because it is a communicable disease and it is mandatory reporting. But that coordination needs to continue to improve. And Dr. Christian, it was, Christensen, it wasn't that long ago that, that we were seeing a, a decline in syphilis and some of these other STDs. And now these numbers are going in the opposite direction. And that's just so concerning. And do you see this trend continuing going forward? Well, I hope not. Um, I agree with you. We were at a fairly age not that long ago. Um, and uh, now we have this big surge, and we're going to have to get this under control and mitigate and then try to maintain. It's um, increasing public education. I want to go ahead and bring in uh, our, our other guest, uh, Jessica Leston, on the show. Just make sure, Dr. Christensen, are you there? Yeah, I think we might have lost Dr. Christensen. Hi, Jessica. How are you doing? Are you there? Yep, I'm here. Okay. All righty. Um, well, we'll go back to Dr. Christensen. We can get her back on the line. But one thing I've read is that it's really critical for syphilis to be for people to get tested early, sooner rather than later. However, there are challenges with that. Why is that, Jessica? Well, I mean, um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with um, there are uh, only a few people who actually like to talk about syphilis and uh, sexual health and sexually mm -hmm. transmitted um, infections because of the stigma um, and discrimination people feel, um, whether that's, you know, an actual discrimination from other people or the healthcare system or just perceived. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we need to work on is destigmatizing and, and normalizing, you know, what, like just talking about sexual health and syphilis. Um, you know, I was talking with a tribe the other day with a tribal health director, um, and, and he was joking, saying that, uh, you know, he and colleagues pass each other and say, watch out, syphilis is on the rise. Um, and, you know, this is a message from a recent campaign that has um, been created for Indian country. Um, and joking about syphilis is, you know, just one way that we can start to normalize it. And it's a very, you know, native way to, to talk about things that are uncomfortable, right? Um, syphilis was also mentioned on Res Dogs last week. Um, and I, you know, I have no idea how they got their content, but kudos to the writers <laughs> for making the show so relevant to like what is happening. So just getting mm -hmm. the message out there to right. the community just, is such an important uh, I'm going to go ahead and, step, Jessica, are you there? Um, because, you know, people are the okay, ones but Dr. that have to go you're in there, right? and consent to getting tested and screened as well. Okay. Jessica, are you there? Can I hear you? Can you? Yep, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear. We just dropped out just for a, a moment there. I'm sorry. So, yeah, <laughs> Res Dog's definitely ahead of the curve there. And I want to ask you, Jessica, because syphilis is, is, is known for spreading through sexual contact, and I think that's where some of this stigma comes in, but can it be transmitted in other ways as well? 
Yeah, the other way that it could be transmitted is from um, uh, mother to baby during um, during uh, uh, pregnancy and childbirth. So it's it's syphilis is actually transmitted both vertically and horizontally, and that's what you know one of the reasons why congenital syphilis is happening, right? Like actually congenital syphilis isn't a sexually transmitted infection, you know, um, it is it's passed from mom to baby um, during pregnancy and childbirth. And, uh, and so we really need to mobilize maternal child health um, and increase prenatal care access um, for, for people um, across Indian country as well. And what are the primary symptoms of syphilis for both adults and, and for a newborn? Well, they call syphilis the great imitator because it can, the symptoms of syphilis, if you have them and see them, um, can be many different things. One of the most common symptoms of primary syphilis, so the first stage of syphilis, um, is a rash, a rash on your hands or your feet, uh, maybe on your back. Um, but a rash can be a lot of things. And I mean, I can have a rash. I had a rash from like, I thought it was poison ivy, right? So I'm like, it's okay. It's poison ivy. It's going to go away. Um, and that's what someone might think about a syphilis rash. It goes away and then you're fine. Um, but the thing with syphilis is the rash might go away, but you still have syphilis. And then it'll switch into secondary syphilis. Um, and uh, secondary syphilis is, I actually reversed that. Pri secondary syphilis is the rash. Um, okay, primary Jessica, syphilis... do, do me a favor, hold that thought, because we're going to have to take a, a short break here. But when we come back, I want you to go ahead and just explain these different stages of syphilis for our listeners. Anyone with a comment or a question today, please give us a call. Phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. Some schools in New Mexico are testing a new student discipline routine they hope will reduce the number of expulsions. It involves a restorative conflict resolution approach. The action comes after reports that Native students are expelled at much higher rates than other groups. We'll hear about the program on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling today. I'm Sean Spruce. We're learning about a new warning by health officials about the significant rise in syphilis infections among Native Americans. They're also urging new syphilis screenings to head off an increase of infections among newborns. If you have questions or concerns about syphilis or other sexually transmitted diseases, call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We do want to mention the importance of getting medical advice from your own health provider as it pertains to your specific situation. So any medical advice you hear today should only be a starting point for keeping yourself healthy. We've got Jessica Leston on the line, and Jessica, you are with the National Center for Clinical Support and Preventative Health Services, and you were 
explaining to us these different stages of syphilis. Please continue. Okay, um, so the first stage of syphilis, primary syphilis, starts with a sore. Um, it's called a chancre, and uh, you you don't necessarily even feel it sometimes. Um, and if it's in a place where you don't look often, then some people don't even notice that they have anything because you can't feel it. Um, so there's it starts with a sore, but the sore goes away. And so if you don't get screened and treated at that time, you'll move on to uh, secondary syphilis. And that's where the rash is, on your hands or on your feet. And again, um, if you don't see it, uh, and you don't go in and get screened and treated, um, then it'll go away, but you'll still have syphilis. Um, and then syphilis can just stay in your body, and you won't necessarily have any more signs or symptoms. Um, and, and, and it can lead to other forms of syphilis um, in your, that, that can affect your eyes, your nervous system, and, and also you know, potentially be passed um, to um, uh, your newborn, um, your, your child during pregnancy. That's why it's so important uh, to go and get screened, even if you don't have symptoms, because maybe you had symptoms and you didn't see it. Maybe you've had it for a really long time. Uh, the screen is really easy. It's just a simple blood draw. Um, you can even do a rapid test in some places and then get treated. Um, and, and the sooner you get screened and the sooner you get treated, the better because that stops the transmission of syphilis. And Jessica, is it true that, this, that it can remain dormant inside a person's body for many years without them even knowing it? Yeah, correct. I mean, um, there's a lot of people now um, that, are, that are older in years and um, they might be um, experience, experiencing some signs of like uh, dementia or some kind of cognitive um, issues. And um, sometimes that can be caused by syphilis and syphilis being in your body for so long um, and just finally manifesting itself, um, you know, in, in the later years. All right, I want to go back to Dr. Loretta Christensen with the Indian Health Service now. And Dr. Christensen, uh, a recent set of guidelines with regard to how do you uh, screen for syphilis and uh, just good, good ideas and suggestions for how people can get themselves tested and things like that were just released last month. Can you talk about those? Yes, we did put out some guidance into the field and, and certainly shared it with all our tribal and urban partners as well. Um, so we are requiring annual syphilis testing for, for persons 13 to 64 because we want to eliminate the transmission by early case recognition. And I think we have to have those conversations that we need to be able to speak about testing, about safe sex practices, and other things that are going to impact our population. We just have to have those conversations. So we also have reminders in our electronic health record that will continue to remind the provider when a patient comes in, hey, this person hasn't been tested. We want to be able to constantly be under surveillance looking for really any of the syndemic diseases like um, HIV, viral hepatitis, we of course test for chlamydia and um, gonorrhea as well. So that is a reminder that this is part of our health. Then we have, um, um, for our pregnant persons, a three-point testing, which is at your first prenatal visit, 
the beginning of your third trimester and delivery. So we have a chance to three times identify those that might have syphilis so that we can treat them and prevent um, the occurrence of congenital syphilis. One of the things I do want to mention with that, again, it's that a lot of our pregnant persons are afraid to come in if they have some substance abuse issues because they don't want to get in trouble, they don't want to get arrested. And all I want to say is we're, we're not judging. We just want to keep you healthy, and we're going to try to do everything to do that. So we really want to get that word out is please, please come and get tested with your pregnancy. And then okay. we made bundles with all of our um, different testing that I just mentioned, as well as express um, testing, which doesn't require an appointment. So if somebody, you know, the stigma, they're embarrassed and they don't want to be seen, especially in smaller communities, the lab and get tested, or we test out in the field um, as, as much as we can so that we get more people willing to be Dr. Christensen, annual syphilis testing for persons aged 13 to 64, 13 years old. Are, are you concerned at all about getting pushback from parents on that? Well, that's always a concern, but I think, again, it's the conversation and, and our comfort with talking about sexual health. The advantage is if that young person has syphilis, we treat it right away and they don't have a life of of this latent stage and possible tertiary findings that we see later. Some parents may not be comfortable with that, but we definitely have to have those conversations with our kids. We have to let them know what's possible, what can happen, how to prevent it, and then if they think that they have it, to get um, help right away. So by widening the screening range, we're hoping to pick up on those most vulnerable to um, transmission of syphilis. Okay. And Dr. Christensen, of course, I think what is so alarming here is, is the risk to newborns. And uh, how serious is that risk? I mean, earlier you talked about the, the rates uh, going especially high with regard to the congenital cases. So where do you see the trend there? Continuing? Well, um, no, I, I don't. Um, you know, we hit a very high peak of congenital cases, and they're still happening. I don't want to say that. But we're starting to see a bit of early signs that we're kind of leveling out a little bit and that we may be getting getting in with um, getting people diagnosed and treated much sooner to get through this epidemic that's going on. Um, and it is congenital syphilis is, the to me, one of the worst expressions of syphilis that we can have is that it affects that, that baby. And, and it can result in uh, having a stillbirth. It can result in having multiple, multiple medical problems upon birth, and that, that will last the lifetime of that, of that baby. So this is extremely serious because it is affecting more than just the mom. It's affecting that future generation of children that are born with um, syphilis. So it's vitally important and, and definitely focused on maternal child health to get them tested, screened, and treated. So that, that's a very aggressive approach that we have to that. Thank you, Dr. Christensen. I want to go back to Jessica again. And uh, Jessica, this these challenges here with, with early screening and testing, and um, can you talk a little bit more about what some of these issues are and, and what can be done to, to encourage more testing and to make it easier for people to get tested? Well, I mean, I think what, you know, one of the things that Dr. Christensen talked about, you know, regarding you know, regarding congenital syphilis being so important, um, I, I, I just 
I think that that is something to like um, talk a little bit more about, you know, I mean, the state of maternal child health and prenatal care access in, in many areas in Indian country, um, you know, don't meet the need. Um, and inadequate sometimes is an understatement. So um, not only do some pregnant women have to travel four plus hours to deliver, but they, they can't even get into a prenatal care visit without four plus hours of driving. Um, and then when you factor in transportation issues or the people, you know, might have jobs or provide child or elder care, you know, couple that with an eight-hour round trip, um, you know, that's just, uh, you can't even, you don't consider that in most places um, for most pregnant people in the United States. Um, and so increasing that access for prenatal care, I mean, I think is something that the Indian Health Service is working on and tribes are working on and is vitally important um, to, um, to, con to, to have that next generation of, um, uh, of Indigenous people being born healthy and whole and, and well. And, and then also what, what, one of the things that Dr. Christensen was talking about there's just this huge overlap between congenital syphilis and drug use during pregnancy. Um, and, and pregnant people experiencing the substance use disorder, like we know what could benefit them. Um, we know that, um, you know, the high quality healthcare for them means that it's evidence-based and that's using, you know, um, medications for opioid use disorder or substance use disorder during pregnancy. It's culturally responsive. Um, it's, really holistic. It's not just talking about the substance use disorder or the baby, but um, the whole person um, to, you know, that individual's needs. Um, but, but we do know that's not happening in a lot of places. And pregnant people face fear coming into clinics because they don't want their babies taken from them. Um, and, and they don't want to be incarcerated, which some tribal um, codes do dictate. Uh, or because they don't want to be stigmatized um, by the providers or the health system. Um, so you have many pregnant people avoiding care for those reasons. Um, and, and what that results in is no prenatal care um, during pregnancy and having babies in emergency departments and having none of the routine prenatal care, including syphilis screening happening during that time. So, so building better holistic you know, really like loving and nurturing places where we can help a pregnant person with substance use disorder um, instead of alienate them is really important. Mm -hmm. And Jessica, I understand that the Navajo Nation has a mobile street testing clinic and it appears to, to be doing really well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the street medicine clinic um, in, in one of the sites in Navajo um, exciting. Um, they have a provider um, uh, with, with a team that go out um, into the community um, in order to provide, you know, STD screening, substance use disorder treatment, uh, wound care sometimes, whatever the person needs um, in that moment. And, and it's rethinking what access to health care is. You know, they're, they're very innovative in that way at this facility. Um, access to health care to them doesn't just mean having a clinic because so many people feel stigmatized um, going into the clinic or fear certain things going into the clinic um, or, or just can't get into the clinic. And so, you know, they're taking the, the clinic out to people um, and providing health care in this way. And it's to one of, you know, the more um, 
vulnerable populations, people who are living houseless, people with substance use disorder. They're collaborating with the jail system, with the public health system, with the tribe. You know, they're doing all of this work in a very holistic way. Um, and I just think what they're doing, what they're doing there is so exciting. Um, and it, it definitely an example for for what other places in Indian country can think of when you're when you're thinking about what access to healthcare means and taking health care outside of the four walls of the actual clinic. Mm-hmm. Jessica, thank you for all those insights. And I want to bring in Dr. Megan O'Connell now. She is the Chief Public Health Officer with the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board up in Rapid City, South Dakota. And Dr. O'Connell, the Great Plains area is one region where this increase of syphilis cases is especially concerning. What's driving that trend? That is a great question, and I'm not sure we know exactly the answer. It's certainly related to some of what Dr. Christensen and Jessica have mentioned already. Um, but, you know, I would also add things like access to care um, can be quite difficult. Our region, which is North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa, is primarily rural. So people can have a hard time accessing care for any sort of health care that's needed. Um, and syphilis and sexually transmitted def- infections are no different. And the screening there in your part of the country, what does it look like? Uh, are, you, are you happy with, with how it works, or do you, do you see some gaps or room for improvement? Yeah, well, I know that um, with Dr. Christensen's leadership, the, the facilities have been working to implement the yearly screening for 13 to 64-year-olds for syphilis and other STIs. Um, We, with uh, tribes and um, IHS, have done community screening events to try to bring screenings out into the community for people that maybe don't go into the doctor um, and kind of find people where they are, either through standalone screening events or even events that are in conjunction with other more more fun activities like basketball tournaments or powwows and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Dr. O'Connell, we heard Dr. Christensen mention this terrible triangle with regard to data coming in from the health service, from, from tribal clinics, and then also state providers. And do you have some of the same challenges up there in the Dakotas and in the Great Plains area? We do. Um, both the health board and the tribes struggle a lot to receive appropriate data to respond to the syphilis outbreak and other public health uh, needs. And we do work a lot on that to try to increase the data flow both from the federal facilities like IHS and from the state public health department so that tribes can have the information that they need to perform public health functions like um, finding people who have syphilis and getting them treated and doing case investigations themselves. And that's something that we are working hard on, but there's a lot of room for improvement. Mm-hmm. And, and is it in any way possible that uh, the numbers might not be as bad for Native people as the CDC report suggests? Maybe there's just better reporting or more testing. I mean, how, how fail-proof do you think this data is? You know, it's always good to question how accurate the data is. Um, 
unfortunately, generally speaking, data undercounts the rates in American Indians and Alaska Natives. We're usually worried about um, not all the cases being counted and not too many cases being reported. Now, with the, the push by Dr. Christensen and the Indian Health Service to increase screening and do annual screening in IHS and tribal facilities, that should um, catch more cases, so increased screening may increase the rates. But we saw the rates go up before those recommendations were made. So um, while we may see more cases because we're looking for them, the sharp increase that occurred around 2020 nationally in syphilis rates among American Indians and Alaska Natives predated those recommendations. So um, unfortunately, I think um, the increase in the disparities are real, but we may continue to see more cases because of our efforts to increase screening. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about treatment of syphilis. Stay with us. We'll return. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a native-led foundation supporting native-led initiatives protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 2nd. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. We're tuned in to Native America Calling. Were you aware of a syphilis epidemic among Native Americans and Alaska Natives? Health officials are warning tribal leaders and those who work with Native populations about a dramatic rise in infections documented in a new CDC report. If you'd like to contribute to today's discussion, give us a call. Our phone lines are open right now. Our number, 1-800-996-2848. One of our guests, Dr. Megan O'Connell, is in Rapid City, South Dakota. She's with the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board. And Dr. O'Connell, let's talk a little bit about treatment of syphilis now. Uh, Is it accessible to those who need it? Theoretically, it is. This is kind of a bright spot for syphilis and because syphilis can be complicated to diagnose. People may not know they have it, but it is completely curable um, with for most people, a single shot of penicillin. Um, so, so we have that ability to completely get rid of syphilis um, with a single dose of medication. So that is a good thing. However, um, unfortunately, there is currently a national penicillin shortage, which is making it harder for people to access that curative medicine. Okay. So are you having challenges up there in in Rapid City getting those doses of penicillin out on the line? Yes. Yeah. We're starting to hear, you know, not just in our area, but across the country about the shortage. And there have been national recommendations to um, limit its use to pregnant women because it is the only treatment that's available for pregnant women. Um, And because congenital syphilis is entirely preventable if the moms are treated, um, it's important to have that medicine available for them. And what's what's the the cause of that shortage of penicillin? Um, My understanding is it has to do with a limiting of manufacturing and who's able to produce it for the United States. 
um, and that it, we could be facing a shortage for some time. Mm -hmm. There is another treatment available for penicillin. It's doxycycline. It's a pill. Um, but it is harder to take. Instead of a single shot, you have to take um, two pills a day for at least a couple of weeks, depending on, on your stage of syphilis. And um, that can be more difficult for people. And you cannot use that in pregnancy. Again, the only medication that works in pregnancy is penicillin. Dr. O'Connell, let's say somebody comes down with symptoms. They go, they get that shot of penicillin. It, it knocks the syphilis right out. Is there still a risk of reinfection perhaps later? Yes, there is. That's a great point. You can absolutely get reinfected with syphilis even after you've been treated. So it doesn't um, prevent you from ever getting syphilis again, even though we can cure it. So that's why it's important um, to make sure any of your partners get tested and treated and that you practice safe sex, of course, as well. And what about other STDs, Dr. O'Connell? Are, are you seeing concerning numbers with regard to some of these infections as well? Yes, um, most STDs have gone up, especially since 2020 across the country, um, not as much as syphilis and um, particularly among American Indians, but all STDs are on the rise across the country. Um, and historically, you often see a rise of HIV um, with a rise in syphilis. And so that's something to look out for as well. And how big a factor was the pandemic, do you think, in just some of these overall increases that you're seeing beyond syphilis? Yeah, there's, there's a definite correlation there. You can look at the graphs of these, the numbers of these different cases, and they all really go up around 2020, although we were seeing some increase in, in STDs or STIs across the country before the pandemic. But when clinics closed and people had to stay home and care was even more difficult to access, I think it can make sense that um, cases increased. And also from the public health side, during the pandemic, public health was also overwhelmed with COVID, just like the clinical side was. And so um, there wasn't the same ability to do case investigations where you go out and find people with syphilis and talk to them um, and get them treated, find their partners. That work was also kind of put on hold because of the enormous amount of work related to COVID. Okay. And Dr. O'Connell, testing and screening challenges, this penicillin shortage, what else do health professionals such as yourself and our other guests today, what do you folks need to, to really make a meaningful dent in these alarming numbers with, with syphilis and, and some of these other STDs as well? Yeah, I think it, it really is goes back to some of what Dr. Christensen was touching on in, in terms of a really a coordination is what we need, a really good coordinated response. You know, syphilis has a cure. It's penicillin. It's been around for 80 years. We know it works. Um, we know how to test for it. Um, but making sure that this, the testing and treatment is accessible 
uh, different parties, you know, the tribes being able to work with the states and IHS um, and everybody working together and doing what they do best to address these this rise in cases is um, really, I think, what's needed. And I'm not saying it's not happening now, but continuing to work on that coordination um, is really important to address an outbreak of this magnitude. And Dr. O'Connell, what about a vaccine? Is that is that even possible at some point in the future that there could be a vaccine for, for diseases like syphilis? Yeah, I believe that they have been hoping to find a vaccine for syphilis, just um, as they've been working on one for HIV, but it can be quite difficult um, to to do these, although we know um, when we put lots of resources behind it, like we did during COVID, we can find mm -hmm. and create safe and effective vaccines, but that hasn't been done yet. Um, and, you know, it would be great, but at right now, I don't think that's anywhere close to being a reality for okay. most people. I, I appreciate you stressing how, you know, when, when forces mobilize and there's a huge, huge demand, uh, how quickly uh, pharmaceutical companies and researchers can, can get the ball rolling on something like a vaccine. And I think what also really concerns me, Dr. O'Connell, is syphilis has been around for hundreds of years. I mean, you, you read stories of, of syphilis cases, you know, back in the 1700s and 1600s and things like that. And so... Um, Certainly, certainly really alarming that here we are in 2023, and not only is it still here, but it's it's rising. It's rising as much as it is, and uh, geez, that must keep you up at night sometimes. It does. It does. It is. Um, it's concerning, and it is frustrating that this disease that, as you they have been around for a long time. We've, we've known about it for a long time. We've had a cure um, since the 1940s and was had relatively low rates for a while. Um, you know, part of the challenges right now is a lot of um, providers have never seen a case of syphilis because it was quite rare. And but now that's not the case. And so it is sad to see that this is happening and that we're facing kind of a perfect storm of rising cases and challenges with medication access and, and all these different things in a disease that also has a tremendous impact on infants um, mm -hmm. and babies. Right, right. Thank you for stressing that. And Dr. O'Connell, really appreciate you joining us today on Native America Calling, as well as Jessica Leston and Dr. Loretta Christensen. Appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge and expertise with regard to this, uh, what can be called a crisis with regard to syphilis and how it's impacting our Native communities. And at this point, uh, I'm going to go ahead and switch gears. We've got a few minutes left in our show. And one of our Native America Calling producers, Andy Murphy, is up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. She's in Canada this week, and she is at the Native American Journalists Association Conference. It's an annual conference for Native journalists just like us, and this year they're holding it in Canada. And uh, she was raring to go up there in Canada and check out some of the Native chefs up in that part of the country and and just get involved and, and network with other journalists. And Andy, you're on the line right now. How are you doing? 
Hey, I'm doing pretty good. We just had our uh, Friday lunch banquet, and um, actually, it's going to be called the Indigenous Journalists Association. Uh, we just all had a vote uh, that went on yesterday, and the results were shared, and the official name of the association is going to be Indigenous Journalists Association. So that's kind of the big news that happened today. <laughs> And um, pretty exciting. It's also the 40th annual um, uh, journalist uh, gathering here, so it's um, pretty special. There's been a lot of uh, telling of history. There's been a lot of uh, uh, legacies being shared with everybody. Um, We had uh, that banquet last night. We had uh, one of the founders of Naja come down um, or come up from <laughs> Navajo area. He's uh, Lauren Tapahi. Uh, he's one of the founders, and he, um, you know, just gave us the whole rundown of the history of Naja. Just, um, uh, you know, 40 years ago, uh, this ragtag group of um, uh, community uh, leaders and journalists just kind of getting together and wondering how they can um, just keep doing. Uh, this good work in Native America, and they, you know, found some funding after a couple years, had a meeting uh, after a couple years, and uh, now it's already been 40, and there's been, you know, at least two, three generations of Native journalists who've kind of come through uh, uh, Naja. So it's been pretty exciting to hear all of that. I, I, I never really uh, paid much attention to the history of Nadia. I've just been, you know, a member and um, coming to these events for the last you know, seven years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really exciting. In 40 years, the growth of Native journalists and, and Native media outlets that are reporting, it's just astounding to see how much progress folks have made and the big news so it will no longer be known as naja it'll be called i guess ija maybe is that going to be the acronym andy indigenous journalist association yeah Yeah, maybe (laughs) okay all right well i know duncan McHugh uh gave a keynote speech tell us about that yeah i think he's been a uh native in the spotlight on uh native america calling maybe once before, and he's been just this uh, knowledgeable voice of uh, uh, First Nations issues uh, on our show a couple of times. So it was really cool to see him in person. Um, He talked about his start um, in journalism and how, uh, you know, he's also, uh, you know, one of those OGs of Mm. Native uh, journalism here in Canada. So he was talking about his start and how, um, looking around him, himself he really didn't see any other indigenous journalists um doing their thing around here and it's amazing to see and hear about how canada and um the the uh journalism has really evolved here they they have a really good network the cbc network um they have aptn um that are really pushing out a lot of uh good native journalism and now they have a lot of um you know native journalists on staff but of course they're not you know stopping there they are uh really paying attention also to the next generation of native storytellers there's a lot of uh young folks here who are from the fellowship and um, college students here uh, who are just getting into the business. So um, I kind of feel like an OG myself. (laughs) 
I remember when I was a student here, and now I'm like, you know, in my in my ninth year at Native America calling. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really cool to hear about uh, uh, Duncan's uh, rise to, um, you know, just just being a really good um, journalist. He's he's probably one of the top journalists in right. Canada, and right. he certainly has that like celebrity status here at uh, I. J.A. <laughs> Duncan McHugh, uh, a First Nations journalist from Ontario. He is Anishinaabe, a member of the Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation. So, Andy, uh, when you coming home and uh, wh- what, are you, what are you enjoying about Winnipeg in, in addition to the conference? Well, I'm coming home on Sunday. Um, I think everybody will be going home on Sunday. Um, but uh, Winnipeg's been pretty uh, cold and rainy and a little bit miserable outside. So I don't think many of us have ventured out there. But um, tomorrow I have an interview lined up with the owner of uh, Shelley's Indigenous Bistro. So um, you'll be hearing from uh, Vincent Big Neal um, on the next menu on Native America Calling later this month. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just been cool seeing a lot of these uh, uh, folks that um, I've known for years. I mean, some of the past Naja presidents were just honored today. Um, you've probably seen their bylines, read their stories and everything. Uh, Mary Huditz, Rhonda Lovazo, uh, Graham Lee Brewer, Tristan Autone, Mark Trahant. Uh, they're all past presidents, and they all got... Uh, Pretty cool medallions. That reads like a a who's who's list of uh, native journalist VIPs for sure. Well, Andy, (laughs) thank you for calling in and and taking the time. Really appreciate you doing that. And and safe travels back to New Mexico on Sunday. All right. All right. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up now. Uh, Our show's going to. We're going to wind down, but uh, again, this has been a, a really, really good, impactful show. Appreciate the health professionals who joined us, as well as Andy Murphy, uh, senior producer for NAC up there in Winnipeg, Canada. Join us back here on Monday for a discussion about a pilot program aimed at reducing the number of Native student expulsions. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Joe McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonio Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe, relaxing weekend. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, 
commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.